0: Reading the Globe, Thursday, June 24, 2021 Written and read by Michael Washburn You may think that cancel culture in the U.S. and Canada is bad and getting worse every day, and there is plenty of evidence for that view. But it may provide a bit of useful perspective to follow what is going on these days in Hong Kong. As reported in The Economist's new issue of June 19, 2021, The so-called national security law that China forced on Hong Kong a year ago has led to one of the most aggressive crackdowns on press freedom and living memory. Police have arrested Ryan Law, editor of the Apple Daily newspaper, and conducted a massive raid on the publication's offices, seizing phones, laptops, notebooks, and other items that supposedly might furnish evidence of collaboration between Apple Daily and sinister foreign organizations, movements, and individuals who hold bizarre and dangerous ideas about democracy, respect for the rights of dissidents, and freedom of the press. The Economist article also mentions the fate of pro-democracy politician Claudia Mo, whom Chinese authorities arrested under the new law on the pretext of remarks she had made to foreign journalists. As The Economist notes, Hong Kong's ranking in Reporters Without Borders' Press Freedom Index has dropped abysmally in the last 10 years. It has tumbled from the 54th rank on the list to the 80th, which is still higher than mainland China's spot at 177th, fourth from the bottom, and one rank higher than North Korea. But that's not saying an awful lot. To say that we are still freer than North Korea does not come off as a ringing endorsement of the state of press and democratic freedoms in one's homeland. All this may provide a bit of useful perspective on the state of intellectual, academic, journalistic, and political freedom in Western countries, but it also raises disturbing questions. As SJW student organizations, woke corporations, and Twitter mobs continue to shout down, disinvite, fire, harass, and intimidate speakers, professors, executives, and employees, and even, as reported recently in Book and Film Globe, demand the retroactive editing and censorship of published books to fit their ideological demands, we may end up in a radically transformed world, one where pro-democracy and human rights activists in China have to go it alone, because there is no longer an example of Western freedom to provide a kind of inspiration, guidance, moral or material support to lean on. With the triumph of political correctness in the West, the Chinese censors may find there is truly no need even to try to enforce their so-called national security law. Cancel culture will have done their work for them. Speaking of cancel culture and its endless ravages, National Review reports in its issue of June 14, 2021, that the law school of the University of Illinois at Chicago has taken the step of dropping the name of John Marshall the fourth SCOTUS Chief Justice, from its name. As you may have guessed, the reason for this step has to do with Marshall's problematic record on slavery and his ownership of slaves. But history is always more complex than some would like it to be. National Review's editorial points out Marshall's brave service in the Union Army and opines, outside the Union, or in a structurally weak one, slavery would have persisted for decades longer than it did. The conclusion of the Gettysburg Address echoes McCulloch v. Maryland for good reason. To refresh your memory, McCulloch v. Maryland is the landmark 1819 decision decided by Marshall's Court that addressed the critical balance between states' rights and the enumerated and unenumerated powers and prerogatives of the federal government. It is slightly puzzling that the editorial does not also mention in this connection another hugely significant case decided by Marshall Scotus the 1803 case of Marbury versus Madison, which cemented in place the prerogative of judicial review of the legality of past decisions and rulings. It is a ruling that arguably has had both good and bad consequences in our history. The one thing that cannot be denied is its significance or the importance of John Marshall in legal and political history. One might ask what purpose the omission of his name from a university's law school will have other than to make the most basic facts of our legal and political history obscure to new generations of students. National Review's editorial concludes, Let's hope UIC's graduates will be better lawyers than historians. Another editorial in the same issue of National Review would be amusing if it weren't so horrible and sad. One of the most progressive cities in the world, San Francisco, is facing up to the consequences of its own policies and political culture. According to the editorial, San Francisco's district attorney has largely refused to go after petty crimes like shoplifting. This refusal is in keeping with the spirit of a 2014 proposition that made thefts of property worth under $950 a misdemeanor in California. The result? a shoplifting epidemic that has led to the closing of 17 Walgreens stores around the city in the past half decade. The editorial reminds us that last year, a news crew inside of Walgreens witnessed a man jumping over a counter, helping himself to products, and walking out of the store unquestioned and unopposed. In the current climate, do security guards really want to get caught in an incident that might go viral? Do they or their employer want to face lawsuits? Does anyone care about law and order in a woke America in 2021? Any review of the state of freedoms around the world would be making an oversight if it did not mention what has been going on in France. The Wall Street Journal's edition of June 23, 2021 features a lengthy cover story about French President Emmanuel Macron's aggressive enforcement of a national law regarding laïcité, or the official secularism of the French polity. Dating back to 1905, when France was unrecognizably different culturally and demographically from what it is today, the law has emerged as one of President Macron's most useful and important tools. In his efforts to rein in what he regards as the outsized influence of mosques in fostering a culture wholly at odds with the traditional French one, and spreading rhetoric that sometimes leads to violence, as happened last October when schoolteacher Samuel Patti lost his life at the hands of a Chechen Muslim extremist who, police theorize, got his name and the address of his school from a mosque's Facebook page. The journal's article details how the aggressive campaign undertaken by Macron has resulted in the scrutiny of mosque's finances, the dismissal of some of their leaders, and the closure for alleged safety violations of certain mosques. Whatever the pretext or the stated motivations of President Macron in organizing and leading this campaign, the article leaves little doubt that his party is lagging in the intensifying political race against the anti-immigrant National Rally Party of Marine Le Pen. No doubt the pressure, even for a socialist president, to look serious and determined about protecting traditional French culture and society must be strong. One can only hope that Macron does not run roughshod over the rights of France's ethnic and religious minorities as he struggles to position his party as a viable alternative to his nationalist and xenophobic rival. Eric Adams has emerged as the clear front runner among the candidates in New York's closely watched mayoral race. And this trend is obviously due in no small part to the strong and consistent backing that Adams has received from the New York Post. On Tuesday, June 22, the Post ran a front-page article endorsing Adams in the primary, whose results were unambivalent. Adams got 31% of the vote, progressive Maya Wiley got 22%, and former presidential candidate Andrew Yang, with a paltry 12%, threw him in the towel and exited the race. What is behind the Post's unflinching endorsement of Adams? The cover story does not mince words. As a former cop, Adams understands the imperatives of public safety and knows exactly what stopping criminals in their tracks and saving lives really entails. You do not do this by slashing police budgets or sending out social workers to deal with violent psychopaths. You do not turn a blind eye to the quote unquote minor crimes that so often presage the most serious kind. You stand firm and carry on the work of Rudolph Giuliani and Mike Bloomberg and avoid the disastrous turns taken by progressive Bill de Blasio, who has almost single-handedly undone the work of his fine safety-minded predecessors and return Gotham to the vicious Hobbesian hell it was in the 1980s and early 1990s. To allow that to happen would harm the city's poor and its racial minorities more than anyone. Is Steven Spielberg selling his soul? An article in the New York Daily News on Wednesday, June 23, details how, after having expressed concerns about the challenge that Netflix poses to cinemas, and after having denied that movies available for streaming and enjoying limited or no theatrical release should be eligible to win Oscars, Spielberg has entered into a partnership with Netflix. Spielberg's production firm, Amblin Partners, will work with Netflix to develop future films. The article quotes Netflix co-CEO Ted Sarandos saying, We are honored and thrilled to be part of this chapter of Steven's cinematic history. No doubt Netflix does get a boost from its association with the director behind so many legendary and iconic films, but the article makes clear that this partnership is very much a function of Netflix's evolving presence in the global media landscape. As the world retreated inside during the pandemic, Netflix gained more than 10 million subscribers during the second quarter of 2020, bringing its total number of subscribers to more than 200 million in the U.S. and abroad. The article leaves little doubt that directors, like Spielberg, who previously held the traditional cinematic experience to be sacred, have woken up and smelled the coffee. But the question stands. How will a director, whose most impressive films derive their magnificence from full-screen visual spectacle, like the Normandy landing immortalized in Saving Private Ryan, ever adapt to a service more amenable to people who want to watch movies on their phones? This is Hollywood, where, as Oliver Stone once put it, the dollar rules. What about art? Written and read by Michael Washburn for Audio Hopper. Audio Hopper.